0: This is the Mike Garrigan Podcast. Welcome to episode 19 of 24 in the Transitions Podcast series from MikeGarrigan.com. My name is Mike Garrigan. I stumbled into audio production by necessity. After having recorded three independent solo albums and a major label album under the name Collapsus, I found myself in a quandary. If I wanted to continue recording, I needed to find a more affordable way to do it. By 2002, the the market for CDs was drying up fast, and and yeah, we were all still selling plenty of records at shows and through our web presences uh, but the retail market the the brick and mortar stores they weren't returning the investment that they had in years past the consumer mindset had changed underneath the best intentions of a loyal fan was the realization that while you could pay for a recording you could also Acquire it for free, illegally, through file sharing or torrent downloads. And the chances of getting slapped with one of those $250,000 a pop uh, fines was so small that the benefit outweighed the risk. And it's a weird position to be in when you find yourself striking up a meaningful conversation with a fan. And after 10 minutes or so, uh, he asks you if you wouldn't mind signing his copy of your record. In this case, this actually happened. This was for The Promise of Summer. And you say, Sure. And you have a bit of enthusiasm about it. And uh, next, rather than pulling out a jewel case with the eight page artwork insert and the, the two colored CD that all told cost about 25 grand to make, uh, including the recording costs but not including the living costs or paying your band costs um he presents a, a cdr that he ripped from a, f- a file sharing site for, or from a friend and y- you you sign the cdr but inwardly you think what just happened after 6 months of promoting the promise of summer uh that record i did in 2002 uh holly and i uh my wife and i spent the, the last 10 grand that we had on a simple uh, G4 Apple computer, uh, Pro Tools 5 software, and a Digi 002, which is a control surface and preamp system that would allow me to record at home. I also bought a few microphones, including a Neumann TLM 103, which I still have today. And back then, when you You had a studio like that in your house, a little home set up that was uh, sufficient to produce commercial recordings. Uh, And suppose other songwriters found out about it. It wasn't long before they began showing up at your door and asking for studio time. And so just like that, I became a music producer. So back then, I divided my professional time evenly between writing new material, uh, recording that material, performing with the band Athenaeum, and producing other artists. And eventually, by 2007, my client base outgrew the spare bedroom I was using for production. And I moved everything into our garage, although I've got to say I had a studio designer uh, work out a, a great sounding room that we built inside the garage. Uh, in 2008, uh, two egrets, media and recording, opened. I found production taking up now about 60% of my professional time, with the other time split between personal writing, recording, and performance. At Two Egrets, I worked as both the principal producer and main engineer. Within the music industry, these are commonly regarded as two separate tasks that the same person can take on, Uh, But the producer is much like the director of a movie who has a vision for the overall project, and the engineer is more like the cameraman who films the director's vision. Um, The higher the budget for the recording, the more common it is for these roles to be assigned to different persons, although some of the most expensive producers also engineer their recordings. Some producers in history are are near household names, at least to other musicians. I mean, Sir George Martin, for example, is often regarded as the fifth Beatle because he brought the band's most difficult ideas to life. Bob Rock drastically changed Metallica's presentation from a sprawling progressive metal thrash band to a commercial metal band, and you can hear it in the difference between Injustice for All and the Black album. It's almost night and day. Uh, Another example, when Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson set out to create an album that they thought would appeal to everyone from age 9 to 90, they created Thriller, uh, which by some charts is the best-selling album of all time. My production philosophy stems from keeping the listener in mind and knowing what an artist's stereotypical listener wants and what the average listener wants guides just about every production decision I make. And uh, this listener generally wants to, to form a connection with the music and uh, he or she has a specific way in which uh, he or she possesses the music and then also uh, that fan demands a level of authenticity. Um, a listener forms a connection with the recording if seven factors, and I just created these, uh, it, just been thinking about this, but uh, are well presented. Um, the seven factors that I think are important to consider are tempo, vocals, beat, performance, tuning, Song construction and loudness. Of all the thousands of production decisions that go into making a single recording, the most important one is deciding on a tempo. A song should be fast enough to hold a listener's interest, but slow enough so that the singer can effectively and intelligibly convey all of the lyrics, especially the words in the chorus. Guitar strumming, bass lines, and drum beats should also make sense at that decided upon tempo. Some artists are not accustomed to using a click track, and a, a click track is a universal tempo marker that carries the whole song, and some bands naturally speed up during song sections, and Others do well with a click guide that's sort of on but not governing the session. In general, uh, the more commercial the recording, the more appropriate a song grid becomes, although that certainly isn't true for some groups whose dynamics and tempos are are fluid and non-gridded. The more novice the artist, the more click and grid will seem appropriate using a grid saves time in the production process if you should want to fly parts around in the song, but uh, the convenience of doing that comes at the expense of natural ebb and flow. Knowing that music doesn't exist in a vacuum, the way I decide on a tempo for a given song is to first listen to all the existing demos and live recordings of a given song that an artist wants to record— I compare those tempos to similar commercial releases by other artists in that genre, and then lastly I'll make a judgment call on what the final tempo should be. And Here I often always have the artist present, uh, playing to a loop or a beat or a, a click that makes sure that the tempo feels just right before even recording a scratch track. The next most important factor in music production is the vocal presentation. And the two considerations for vocal presentation are the song's key and the song's arrangement. The key of a song should aim to balance the singer's range with the execution of the song and here you want to make sure the vocalist isn't singing out of her range on either end at any point in the song. Uh, you don't want her voice to crack because the high notes are too high or the low end to sort of buckle and pitch either because it's too low. And You also want to be careful when you're moving the pitch any more than one step in either direction because it can change the nature of the accompaniment. For example, if the chorus requires a low E chord to deliver the power of the song and You've decided that it's too high, so you drop the key of the song to C sharp. You've just asked the band to either tune down a step and a half or get a whole new set of guitars (laughs) to accommodate the change. And this happens more often than than you'd think. Uh, Capos, which uh, move the pitch up, are are more forgiving, but the guitars kind of sound plinky uh, the higher the clamp goes. So be careful with capos. Um, Having a proper arrangement can highlight a vocal in such a way that you don't have fistfights among the band members upon mixdown, and knowing that vocals carry the weight of a listener's connection, uh, the singing should not be buried under other mid-range instruments. Guitars and synths and pianos are usually the main culprit when it comes uh, to this tug-of-war with the lead vocal. An easy way to, to head off any trouble in this respect is to Uh, suggest keeping mid-range parts out of the main octave of the vocals. For a female singer, this would produce, generally, guitar parts that are different from a male singer. That makes sense. Uh, An excellent example of a well-produced rock track that has audible vocals and loud guitars at the same time is a song uh, called Animal by Pearl Jam from their album *Verses*. And in the verses of the song, uh, the guitars play a riff, and then they stop in order to make way for the vocals. Uh, in the chorus, uh, the guitar goes super high and plays this you know, weird funk pattern while the vocals stay an octave below. It's very creative, excellent arrangement, uh, that's a good example of how to do that. Attracts rhythm is the third most important production factor. And here we're concerned with the beat, the bass line, as well as supporting percussion. While not all productions have a kick drum, almost every production grooves to some extent. If you're, if you're using a click track rather than uh, the ice pick through the forehead cowbell or shaker clicks that come uh, on, on a recording platform as the default... Uh, try using percussion loops and drum loops and instrumental loops that inspire and make the initial tracking exciting. And you know, having a good shaker and tambourine and ancillary percussion track like a bongo can also serve a purpose later to give the choruses and bridges or even verses a, a nice energy lift. If you're using a drum kit or a drum machine, it's imperative to establish its presence as early as possible. Uh, probably as soon after a a scratch instrument and vocal uh, is made. That's, you know, this is going to really guide the production. Um, The drums should be appropriately tuned, and the right microphones should be placed in the appropriate positions. You'll want to scoop out the mid-range of your kick drum and your tom drums, if, if you're recording real drums, and If you're planning on replacement technology, you you at least want the overheads to be clear uh, and clean, Uh, and the kick and snare should also appear in the overheads uh, quite well. The drums should sway a bit, and quantizing drums is a tendency at times, but it isn't necessary unless the drummer is mediocre or or you're really wanting that metronome-perfect performance. Uh sometimes it's cool to quantize drums to a groove rather than a grid, meaning uh if the snare is hit in the third beat and it drags a little bit, the same will happen on an otherwise perfect take of acoustic drums. Think think about that. You know, that's that's a little more interesting than just uh making everything grid up, you know. Um once you have your drums the way you like them, uh, bass is a good thing to add if it wasn't already part of the drum tracking. A good bass player will lock in with the drummer, often supplying a a bass note where the fundamental kick beat exists, and it'll also complement the guitars and the vocal melody. Uh, The most competent bass players will will land their note just behind the attack of the kick drum, and this is called playing behind the beat, and it yields a track that grooves much better than a bass line that's quantized exactly to the corresponding beat. It takes a really good percussionist to play to an established track, and something as simple as the idea of adding a tambourine or a shaker can end up taking hours if you're not careful. Um, I often just use tracking loops, you know, which include a shaker or tambourine, and if I use them at all, and occasionally I've recorded an amazing percussionist who can just glue a track together, comes in, it all makes sense, but that's been a rare occasion nowadays as we've Entered the age of quantizing. Um, once you have the tempo established and the key and the arrangement focused and the the rhythm tra- section is tracked, and then you're ready to begin uh, the heart of the performance of the song. And the track should make sense with the drums and the bass line and the scratch tracks. And on occasion, I've I've just used. Uh, the the main tra- tracks uh, that I've tracked, but that's been rare as well. Um, here what we're talking about is is the performance of the vocals and the primary instruments. And it's a tricky thing and in the studio you are often isolated and not performing together, but you're meant to appear as if you're performing together. A singer has to deliver sufficient intensity to match a live performance while Resonating adequate pitch and accuracy and a good sound. And a guitar player has to dig in as she would at a show, but not so much that it destroys the dynamics of the recording. Here, manipulating the musician's environment can help, and some singers might need the lights turned down, or others might want to hold a guitar or a percussion instrument as maybe they would live. And some guitarists may need to track in the room with their amp. In order to get the right feedback or sort of amp interaction, always encourage your guitarist by the way to to record standing up unless they play sitting down live. It can create some weird issues when a guitar player does a whole record sitting down and can't pull it off at the show. Uh, just it, it happens. Um, sometimes the only way to achieve a convincing sound is to have everyone track at once. And here's where having access to a bona fide studio with isolation rooms and gobo's and and things like that can can really help. And uh, you'll you'll know from a live show or a demo recording if if a band can pull this off. Uh, what you're gonna lose is isolation of the parts, but what you're gonna gain is something much more interesting and, and human than plain old boring perfection and in these situations I've almost always overdubbed the vocals later but uh, the tracking vocal that you'll do when everyone plays together it supplies you with a really good standard to beat like if you're beating that in the studio you've done the right thing I think I know who you are From the way you see right through me, think I know who you are, think you said that you had feelings, yeah nothing I know who you were. I think you said that I had problems. I think I know who you are. The way you turn green and get angry. Yeah, nothing in this world ever stops you now. Nothing in this world ever stopped you. Nothing in this world ever brought you down to where I am. Nothing in this world ever stopped you. Nothing in this world ever brought you down to where After all the primary performances are complete, and they sit well with the rhythm track, it's it's time to open Pandora's box. In the early twenty first century, autotune appeared in just about every commercial studio. It it revolutionized the way in which we can correct imperfections in, in the vocals without spending hours of time tracking and retracking the same performance. Uh, naturally, like Uncle Ben said to Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. And this is the most abused tool in the studio today. And sometimes a client will ask for a robot-like pitch and the sound doesn't really benefit the production. And other times a client will refuse to use auto-tune at the expense of sounding out of tune. And Developing a clear stance on pitch correction is the hallmark of a good producer. Some people use it, some people don't. But knowing where to stand is the key. My personal position on pitch correction is to get the vocal sounding as good as possible from about five takes. And uh, once the composite is crafted from those five takes, if there are any points in in that track that require tuning, I'll apply a light graphical correction to the sections. And, you know, some genres like EDM and country require heavily tuned performance um, to be competitive. But, you know, other genres like punk and metal will use it sparingly. I mean, personally, I can't imagine a Slayer album with auto-tuned vocals. It just wouldn't sound right. Um, If you uh, ever recorded with me, if you've ever recorded with me, you know that I use simply, I partly jokingly call the Brubeck Principle, and, and which states that an artist will deliver 90% of his vocal potential by take five. Huh, very funny. Uh, a good way to, to save time and use technology responsibly is to have your, your singer perform the song five times. Make a composite, tune the treble parts, and then listen down. Uh, If there are any further corrections, all you have to do is punch into the track and then make it work. And and by doing this, you've you've saved uh, the client a lot of money. Um, The the Brubeck principle also applies to guitars and pianos and any overdubs that might need to happen at this stage. The key is to get a number of takes, but not so many that you can't possibly sift through them all. Um, The element of song construction is something. I leave at the artist's discretion and, you know, we'll have a discussion of lengthening or shortening, shortening sections of, of a particular song and that initial consultation that I'll do with an artist. But after everything is tuned up and uh, this is a good opportunity to see that your song is hitting the right markers and if the project is sort of a vanity project or has a specific niche vision, these considerations are almost irrelevant. But, If an artist is hoping to impress anyone uh, with the recording that you're making, uh, I think there are five rules that can help a listener relate to a song. The first rule is that the song should be in length uh, between three minutes and 30 seconds, and four minutes. And this comes from the old radio rules from the 80s and 90s, and it still works today in some respects, because around four minutes or so... uh, a mainstream song will have said everything it needs to say. And this doesn't apply to like prog rock or experimental songs, but generally that's the range if you're looking to make a a commercial impact or impress somebody at a label or publishing house. And secondly, the song should have no more than 10 seconds in the beginning of the song without vocals. And this is because... Uh, the the listener is used to hearing some kind of cue for attention by that 10-second mark. So you don't want to have a minute of of guitar solos before your uh, song starts with the singing. Uh, The third thing is uh, the chorus or the main hook should happen around 45 seconds into the song. Uh, This just, again, goes back to that uh, attention span thing. And, And fourth, the second chorus should occur around the minute and 30 mark, and this is because repetition is key here. And fifth, uh, a bridge with lyrics is preferred to a guitar solo, and this is in order to connect the the middle of the song with the ending. And You know, guitar players like me, we love guitar solos, but guitar players um, are a rare breed. (laughs) Uh, Just about everyone else doesn't like the guitar solo. Um, So the, the final production factor uh, that affects a, a listener's relatability is loudness, and the average volume of a track is what conveys a sense of power and authority of a recording. And it's no surprise that this, like auto tune, has been abused uh, nearly as much. And if you've if you've heard of the loudness wars, this is what they're talking about. And since about the mid nineties. Recordings have been getting louder and louder to the point where the final master becomes distorted and harsh. As a producer, you can take steps to ensure that if the master is hijacked by an amateur mastering engineer, or if the artist takes the tracks and runs them through a compressor on his computer at the last minute before releasing it, uh, the result will be at least palatable. Um, the the key here is having a good handle on gain structure, as, as well as a good rapport with your engineer, if you have an engineer. Um, every track should be recorded with proper gain, and in my opinion, this is up for debate, but this means that the initial tracks fall between minus 12 and minus 6 for most of the performances, and this is going to offer you good headroom in the final mix as well as tracks that aren't hyper compressed or over loud from the beginning. And a light stage of bus compression is fine in the in the final mixdown. Um but a top margin of -2 to -1 is a nice courtesy to leave to uh for the mastering engineer. Addressing those seven factors again. Um tempo, vocals, beat, performance, tuning, song construction. Addressing these seven factors has often yielded excellent commercial recordings um, under my watch. And uh, one factor that greatly depends on the nature of your client is whether they're aiming to appeal to sort of a flash-in-the-pan culture, uh, or if they have a loyal fan base for whom every release is a cherished collection of music. Uh, The former will probably require less editing, polishing, and fixing, while the latter may require a little more TLC when finishing the tracks. And It it depends greatly on uh, the artist's budget, their their vision, and and what the expectation of that artist's fans is. In other words, as a producer, you're going to have to strike a balance between overcorrection and undercorrection. And in my experience, every artist has a different threshold uh, for what that is. Um, Authenticity is a, a growing concern among listeners because technology quite literally allows someone without much talent to make something that sounds like a good song. It's often a good practice to go see a band or an artist in their native live setting to Evaluate what kind of recording would represent the band adequately. Uh, Listen for what makes the band or the performer appealing. And make sure that that aspect is represented in the recording. I mean, for example, you wouldn't want uh, a live group who features elaborate three-part harmonies throughout all of the songs to have uh, no harmonies or merely supporting harmonies on the recording. You know, I think that the future... Of recording is in uh, more authentic sounding works. Here, I think we're going to see uh, less separation and uh, perfection and, and more rawness and presentation of of why a band has fans in the first place. And Auto-tune will become a relic of the times, much like reverb was a staple in the 80s. So, as a producer, it may feel weird not to use tools like Sound Replacer or Beat Detective or auto-tune, but I wouldn't shy away from that feeling. You know, old old school recordings where everyone is in the room just going for it, uh, those are the most fun for, for both the band and the listener. The seven factors I've outlined reflect the basic stages of music production, and I like to begin a production project by having, you know, like a two-hour consultation with the prospective client. And here, I'll ask uh, to hear the songs, Uh, he's interested in recording, and I'll outline my production philosophy, my schedule of fees, and a sample daily schedule of how I like to work. And then we'll talk about the goal of the recording. Uh, An artist almost always has a motive for recording, and sometimes it's uh, to serve as just a demo for getting more live shows, and sometimes it's to put an album on iTunes, and other times it's a pure vanity project that's just going to be basically, for lack of a better term, a very expensive coaster. But uh, knowing the project's true north is going to inform every production decision uh, from how polished the recording should be to a general production approach. And in this initial conversation, you'll learn a lot about your client. Uh, If the artist brings a parent to the initial session and that parent is doing most of the talking, you can expect that parent to have an active role throughout the project. Uh, Alternately, if you see the client is unfocused and, say, on her phone a lot during the consultation you can expect the same throughout. Uh, if the artist seems shy and reserved, uh, she may need to get to know you before doing vocal tracking. You might need to go out to lunch or, or uh, spend some time outside the studio, maybe going to a show, uh, seeing her perform, uh, just to get to know and, and, and develop some sort of uh, working relationship. Um, because the nature of album sales has changed greatly in the past 10 years um most producers at my level which is sort of that pre um class a a list maybe c list producer if there's such a thing but most of us uh We don't really request points on a project. I mean, uh, 3% of the wholesale price would not be uncommon nowadays, but whatever your arrangement with your clients, it's a good idea to be upfront about all the fees, including, but not limited to, uh, data storage, correspondence, instrumental, uh, rental, session musicians, and really anything that's going to affect the artist's budget. And, you know, what has worked for me is offering all of my services for one upfront price per hour and this is going to accommodate for a project that requires more time and it's going to reward the artist for finishing faster than planned and you know also I have no problem playing whatever instruments the artist needs uh, on the session I play everything so I you know I enjoy that and it forces me to keep my chops up but I also just include that I I don't like the idea of nickeling and diming a client because uh, you know, life is hard enough for an artist. Um, but the next thing I'll do is uh, I'll often do one to two hours of pre-production per song uh, that we're going to record. And here we decide on the tempo and the key and what kind of click track, if any, and, and the general approach to the rhythm tracks. And here we'll also record a scratch track for reference. The the next phase of the recording is the primary elements, which includes drums, bass, and uh, one primary accompaniment instrument, and then vocals, and this is going to take the bulk of the time. This is the meat of the song. Um, Next, we'll record the secondary instruments, uh, the overdubs and, and background vocals, and it's in this stage that the song appears complete in the studio, but the rough mixes may sound a little uneven out in the real world. Um, After that, uh, we'll perform any needed edits and print any essential effects that the mix engineer may not have. Um, For example, a a boutique multi-tap delay that makes a background vocal what it is uh, is a good example of something that you're going to want to print before mixing because you can't assume that the mix engineer is going to have it. the final stage of the production um, I guess process if that, yeah, uh, is <laughs> uh, formatting and preparing the songs for mixing and here the the files are often consolidated so that a mix engineer can just pull them up on, on the mixing console or within his preferred workstation and begin work and supplying a decent rough mix is also a good practice uh, a lot of times. I mix the projects I produce too. So in this scenario, I try to keep the hats separate. If I'm mixing, I'm not trying to fix a track blemish that should have been addressed in the production phase. Similarly, if I'm mastering a project, I'll keep that separate as well. An artist will often have many questions about How the business works and how to shop a song and how to book a show and how to build a fan base. And I found an excellent way to build repeat clients for multiple projects is to, to share my experiences with these matters, either in breaks or before a session or after a session. Um, Two books I recommend uh, to any client or any person, really, um, who's interested in recording and being a recording artist. First, Dave Rose's book, Everything I Know About the Music Business, I Learned From My Cousin Rick. Uh, This is for artists who are just starting out. Um, And then if you're a little more established and have um, some questions about the the nuts and bolts of things, Donald Passman's Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business um, is almost required reading. And, um, I recommend these books to everyone I work with, but I gotta say, you know, my favorite part of the production uh, cycle, this, all this madness (laughs) I've just talked about, um, is when an artist comes over after the session with with a smile and a few copies of her album. And she gives me a copy. And, um, the first 10 times or so when, when clients did this, I, I put these albums in frames and in the studio hallway um but I ran out of space not after long but it it's really fun to listen to a project with a happy client and comment on how much fun it has been and uh recommend a way to promote the project that's just a really nice thing to to do um on June 30th 2016 I formally ended my for hire status as a producer although I I do have a handful of clients that I work with by appointment and when I'm available. But other than having participated as a session musician in a few different capacities under different producers, um, I haven't been produced by anyone other than myself since The Promise of Summer. And, you know, going forward, I kind of think it might be interesting to write a collection of songs and hire someone else to produce it, just to see what that's like. But that's for another time. The Mike Garrigan Podcast is brought to you by MikeGarrigan.com.